You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. One of the reasons that we love Christmas carols is that they are thick songs. They have layers and depths that draw out deep biblical patterns and connect themes from all over the scriptures. And no carol, in my judgment, is thicker than the Advent anthem, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which we'll sing at the end of this service. The rod of Jesse from Isaiah, the key of David from Revelation, wisdom from on high from James 3, the desire of nations from Haggai, Christ is invoked in all of these and connected to a vast array of biblical themes. Salvation from the depths of hell, relief from death's dark shadow and the grave, scattering the gloomy clouds of night, walking the paths of the knowledge of God, filling the world with heaven's peace. It's good to sing songs like that. And it's especially good to sing a song like that, that Advent anthem, as we preach through the book of Exodus. Because two verses in that song hearken back to these pivotal chapters in the Bible. The opening one, or actually I should say this one first. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. That's what Pastor Jonathan preached last week. And of course, the opening verse connects Emmanuel from Isaiah and Matthew to Israel's captivity in Egypt and her exile in Babylon. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. So as we finish out this Advent season and as we draw this year to a close, my task this morning is to review the first 19 chapters of Exodus, to recap and remind us of what we've seen as we enter the Christmas season and prepare for a new year. And so I, I got, as I was uh, going back through to prepare the sermon, I got to go back through and review all the sermons from the fall, um, and it was incredibly rich and rewarding for me. So I reread the sermons from the other pastors. Again and again, I was moved by the deep reflection on the biblical themes and patterns of the book, as well as the careful and wise and relevant application of those themes to our lives and to our church. So my plan for this morning is just threefold. First, I just want to review the story. I just want to tell you the story again that you've heard. If you've been here since September, you've heard this story. If you haven't, you get like the Cliff Notes version of the, of the semester. It's good to hear this story afresh all at once. And second, I want to ask a question. I want to ask, who are we in this story? Who are we as the people of God? As we see Israel in this story, who are we? And then third, I want to ask the major question that has dominated the book of Exodus thus far, who is Yahweh? And then there's a, a third question after that that I won't touch on today, but I will touch on on Christmas Eve in our service there. So if you come, you'll hear the last question that we can ask about this semester then. So let's review the story. Three parts to this story. The call of Moses, which runs from chapter one to chapter six, verse 13. The judgment on Egypt, which runs from there to chapter 13, verse 16. And the wilderness and the mountain from the middle of chapter 13 to the end of chapter 19. That's the three stages of the story. So let's review. You remember the book opened with the genealogy of the 12 sons of Jacob and their families, the 70 people who journeyed to Egypt 
to escape the famine in the days of Joseph. In Egypt, they are fruitful, they are multiplied, they fill the land until a new Pharaoh arises and begins to oppress God's fruitful people out of fear of them. The people are enslaved, ruthlessly forced to do bitter work in the cities and the fields, but their fruitfulness continues and Pharaoh escalates, attempting to cull the people by killing the sons of Israel in the cradle at the hands of their own midwives. And then when that doesn't work, ordering all the people to drown all the sons in the Nile. But faithful women from Shipra and Pua, who deceived the tyrant, to Moses' mother Jochebed and his sister Miriam and the unnamed daughter of Pharaoh. These faithful women rescue the sons of Israel, and especially the baby Moses, whom God will call to deliver his people from bondage. Exodus, you see, opens with echoes of Genesis chapter 3, a serpentine king dealing craftily with God's people and then transforming into a dragonish tyrant who seeks to devour God's sons. That war, the war between the woman and the serpent, between her seed and his seed, has come to Egypt. And so we follow Moses for the first 80 years of his life, 40 spent in Pharaoh's palace, and then 40 in the wilderness of Midian. We see his compassion for his people, his zeal to protect his brethren from Egyptian oppression. And then we see his confusion when his first efforts to deliver them fail and he's forced to flee from Pharaoh's wrath. We see his protection once again in Midian as he saves the daughters of Jethro from greedy shepherds at the well, winning the hand of Jethro's daughter Zipporah and having a son by her. And then at the center of this first section of the story is the call of Moses on the mountain of God. There, God tells Moses, I have heard the groaning of my people, and I am sending you, Moses, to lead them out of bondage in Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. But Moses, Pharaoh will not let my people go easily, and I will be forced to compel him with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And then, to authenticate Moses' calling, God gives him the ability to do signs, a staff and do a serpent, hand to leprosy, and back again and to change water into blood. And in the face of Moses' unbelief and his sense of inadequacy, God supplies Aaron to be his mouthpiece and sends them both to Pharaoh with a message. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you don't, I will kill your firstborn son. And so we see Moses return to Egypt while his Midianite wife seals her and Moses' commitment to Yahweh by circumcising their son and touching the blood to Moses' legs in an anticipation of the Passover to come. And Moses returns to the people, wins their confidence, and awakens their hopes of deliverance. But his first efforts to petition Pharaoh fail, and Pharaoh scoffs, who is Yahweh? that I should obey his voice. I don't know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. Not only that, Pharaoh responds to Moses' demand by flexing his muscles as the king of Egypt. He increases their oppression, demanding more bricks from the Hebrews and supplying no straw for the work. This This is not what Moses and Israel expected. 
And in the face of their confusion, God reiterates his commitment with a seven-fold promise to Moses. I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under these burdens. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I will give it to you. I am Yahweh. And with that, the first phase of this story comes to an end. From oppression and death on the banks of the Nile to a burning bush on the mountain of God and back to the palace of Pharaoh with a staff and a promise, God has called out Moses and taken him on a strange 80-year journey to bring him right where he wants him. Phase two, judgment on Egypt. This phase of the story shows God making good on his promises by bringing judgment on Egypt and saving his people. We see God do 10 great acts of judgment in the face of Pharaoh's ever-hardening heart. In three escalating cycles of three plagues, we watch as Moses and Aaron deliver the word of the Lord, and Pharaoh, with that stubborn heart, refused to yield to Yahweh's power. That judgment on Egypt begins with the waters of the Nile turning to blood. And then God begins to fill Egypt with a total judgment. From the waters to the amphibious frogs, from the frogs to the gnats emerging from the dust of the ground, from the ground to the air with its swarms of flies, from the air to animal flesh as the livestock of Egypt perish, from animal flesh to human flesh as the Egyptians break out in boils and sores, from the flesh to the sky as thunder, hail, and fire fall on Egypt and locusts swarm on the east wind. And then finally, the plagues reach the heavens as God turns off the lights in Egypt and plunges them into a darkness so deep that they could feel it. And then the culmination. The final judgment falls on Egypt's future as Yahweh makes good on his threat. Israel is his firstborn son, and in the face of Pharaoh's defiance, Yahweh slaughters every firstborn in the land of Egypt, small and great, rich and poor, man and beast. But in the midst of this judgment, Yahweh shows mercy. The blood of a lamb painted on the doorposts of a house causes the angel of death to pass right over. This final act of judgment and mercy, of death and life spared because of blood, this night of hope and fear, Israel is commanded to remember every year in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast, this memorial reminds the people of God's faithfulness and what his mighty hand is able to do. And with that final act of judgment, Pharaoh's resistance finally breaks. He sends the sons of Israel out in haste and God's people leave Egypt, but they don't leave empty-handed. In fulfillment of God's promise and in obedience to God's command, they leave Egypt laden with Egyptian wealth, gold, silver, jewelry, and clothing. More than that, they don't leave Egypt alone. The power of Yahweh has enlarged the boundaries of the people, and it is a mixed multitude of Hebrews and Gentiles that throw their belongings over their shoulders and make their exit from a decimated kingdom. And with that, the second phase of the story comes to an end. From the palace of Pharaoh to the banks of the Nile as judgment falls and fills the land of Egypt until the cries of Egyptian mothers fill the night sky, 
Yahweh has made known his power and delivered his people, bringing them out of bondage just as he promised. Phase three, wilderness and the mountain. This takes us into the desert. As a million people follow a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, as it leads them on a circuitous pass, path through the desert until they reach the edge of the Red Sea. And at this point, Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart once more. Pharaoh regrets his decision and sends out his chariots and his army to bring his slaves back to Egypt. And then with their backs against the wall, the people cry out in fear and they witness Yahweh once again get glory over Pharaoh as he makes known his power and his salvation. Moses raises his staff and the Red Sea parts and the people cross on dry ground while that pillar of cloud and fire protects them and drives the Egyptians into a panic. And then as the last of God's people reach the other side of the sea, Moses stretches out his hand once again and the walls of water come crashing down on the pursuing Egyptians. Horse and rider are thrown into the sea. Yahweh triumphs gloriously over his enemies and saves his people once again. But this is not the only triumph for Yahweh in the wilderness. A few chapters later, the Amalekites seek to make Israel their prey, coming out to attack them in their weakness and vulnerability. Again, Moses stretches out his hands and the armies of Israel, led by a young leader named Joshua, prevail whenever his hands are raised. And with Aaron on one side and her on the other, Moses keeps his hands raised from morning till night so that Joshua overwhelms Amalek and his people with the sword. In the midst of these threats from enemies, the people of Israel also face the hardships of the wilderness, hunger, thirst, the threat of death. But Yahweh provides for them again and again, sending quail to cover the camp, pie crust from heaven to cover the ground, turning bitter water to sweet, and then bringing streams of water out of a rock. Whatever threats his people face, whether enemies or hunger or thirst or death, Yahweh is with them and among them to provide for them and keep them alive in the desert. And at this stage in the story, Moses reunites with his father-in-law, who gives him some really good advice about managing the people and paves the way for a transition in the story to a discussion of the law by which God's people will be ruled. After leaving Jethro and journeying from Rephidim, the people finally arrive at Sinai, at the mountain of God, the same mountain where Moses received his call. And there, with a thick cloud and thunder and lightning on top of the mountain, Moses meets with Yahweh yet again, this time at the head of a mixed multitude of a million people. And with that, phase three of the story comes to an end. From the fallen kingdom of Egypt to the Red Sea, from the Red Sea into the wilderness, through the wilderness to Sinai, Yahweh has borne his people on eagles' wings, delivering them from their enemies, sustaining them with miraculous provision, and bringing them to himself at the mountain of God, just as he promised. That's the story. That's the story as we've preached it and read it over the last few months. So here's those questions. What does it teach us about who Israel is and therefore who we are? Because that's that's what we've been laboring to see. 
These stories of Scripture are thick. They establish patterns so that we can learn to know ourselves through the story of God and his people. And so I have for us today three lenses to see ourselves in the story. First, who are we? We're groaners. We are groaners. Like Israel, we groan in the face of the oppression and hardship of this broken world. Whether it's long-term oppression and pain and suffering at the hands of wicked people, whether it's the short-term terror and fear of impending death, whether it's the threat of hunger and thirst and natural hardship or the threat of violent and hate-filled enemies, whatever the terror, whatever the threat, whatever the hardship, like Israel, we feel the weight of life in a fallen world. And I'm 100% confident that this morning in this room, there are people who Christmas is not a happy time. It's a heavy time. There's pain and there's brokenness and there's hardship and there's fear and there's death. And so we groan. We groan like Israel. We groan in our slavery. We labor and toil in the shadow of death. We mourn in lonely exile here. And in the midst of our groaning, we cry out for deliverance. Come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Second, we're grumblers. Pastor Jonathan reminded us again and again, I think this was maybe my biggest takeaway from the series personally. There is a difference between groaning under the weight of the brokenness and pain of this world and grumbling accusations against God. And like Israel, we do both. We too chide with God. We quarrel with him and with each other. Remember when Moses first arrived with his three miraculous signs, we're told Israel believed and they worshiped Yahweh, but when the deliverance didn't come immediately, they immediately complained and blamed Moses for making them stink in the sight of Pharaoh. And then God brought the 10 plagues of Egypt. The people welcomed his deliverance, but when that deliverance was swiftly followed by being trapped at the Red Sea, the people cry out again. They blame Moses for bringing them out to die by the ocean. And then when God throws horse and rider into the sea, the people sing and they praise him for their deliverance. The Lord is the, my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. And three days later, when they can't find water, they complain against Moses yet again. And then God says, fine, I'll turn the bitter water into sweet. And a few days later, when food is hard to come by, grumbling, complaining, wishing they were back in Egypt. And then God provides magic pie crust from heaven and fills their bellies with bread and quail. And again, water runs low. And again, the people quarrel with Moses in anger and they test God in unbelief. And even at Sinai, 
when they finally draw near to the God who has cared for them every step of the way, they shrink back in fear and demand that Moses go up there alone to deal with the Lord. And so it is with us. When God's deliverance doesn't look like we expect, what happens? Our unbelief immediately rises up. It doesn't matter what he did for us yesterday. It's there coming out in the complaining and grumbling. When the Christian life is harder than we expected, what do we do? We grow nostalgic for the good old days of bondage. We romanticize the sufferings of our past in comparison to the hardships of the present. In the face of trials and suffering, we so easily fall back into a spirit of fear, falling back into slavery rather than walking in the spirit of sonship that we've been given in Christ. We're fearful. We're unbelieving. We complain and we quarrel and we protest and we accuse. We are grumblers. So come, oh come, Emmanuel. And finally, more important than our groaning and more important than our grumbling is this, this simple fact. I hope you didn't miss this throughout the story. We are beloved children of God. As we saw last week, we are his treasured possession, his chosen people, his holy nation. Israel was his firstborn son, and in Jesus, we too are his sons and his daughters. And not only that, we're kings and we're priests, a royal priesthood called out by God to worship him, to minister his grace to others, and extend his kingdom in the world. Deeper than our groaning, Deeper than our grumbling is the simple fact that we belong to Yahweh. He has purchased us. He has brought us to himself. We are his. He is ours. Come. Oh, come, Emmanuel. And that brings us to that final question. That most important question in Exodus. It's the question on Pharaoh's lips, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? It's the question on Moses and the elders' lips. If I come to the people and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What am I supposed to say? And as Pastor Jonathan and Pastor David said at numerous times this semester, this is what the entire book of Exodus has been all about. Again and again, we hear this refrain, then you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Then you shall know that there is no one like Yahweh, your God. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. I am doing all of this so that my name may be proclaimed in the earth, so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh, so that you and the Egyptians and the whole world might know that I am indeed Yahweh. The book of Exodus is an education in Yahweh. And so who is he? Again, I've got three lenses. Three lenses for us to see Yahweh in this story. First, he just is. He just is. His name is I am who I am. 
He is God. And his godness simply means that he is. He's independent. He's self-existent. Unlike you and me, we depend on him for our existence. By the grace of God, I am what I am. There's no by the grace of God, I am what I am. I just am who I am. I just am. He depends on no one. He has no needs, no lack. He is utterly unique. Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? There's no one higher, no one more fundamental than Yahweh. We worship him because he does not need our worship. He is full and rich and overflowing and holy. He is reality itself, and there is none like him. That's who Yahweh is. But second, Yahweh is the author. He is the creator and the covenant Lord. He is the causer of all things that are. He is ultimate being, and therefore he causes all things to be. He's the author of the story. We're just the characters. This whole earth belongs to him. He is omnipresent and he is everlasting. He is everywhere and he is every when. And because he is everywhere and every when, he sees and he knows everything. He hears and he knows everything. He's the covenant God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, And so what does he see? The oppression of his people. What does he hear? The groaning of his people. And what does he do? He remembers and he acts to deliver them. Yahweh is the author. He sees, he hears, he remembers, he acts in faithfulness. More than that, because he is the author, he's omnipotent, sovereign over all things. No one can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? He shows his power, we saw this again and again, he shows his power with precision. When he brings the plagues on Egypt, there's laser-like intentionality. Flies here, not there. These livestock dead, not those. Boils on these people, not on those people. Darkness in Egypt, not in Goshen. Here and not there, these and not those. This is the author of the story, intervening in this story with unfathomable precision so that we would know that he indeed is Yahweh. But he's not just sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over the heart. The king's heart, indeed everyone's heart, is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He hardens hearts, and he softens hearts. He shows that he is Yahweh because he and he alone can touch and transform the deepest part of who we are. Finally, he's not just the independent, self-existent God who is, and he's not just the author of the story of his glory, but Yahweh in Exodus reveals himself as a character in the story. As in, he's not just everywhere, he's there. He's here in this particular place in a bush that burns but doesn't burn up. 
so that this place, not that place, this place is holy, and Moses, you better take off your sandals. He's here as the angel of death, moving with precision through the land of Egypt, slaying the firstborn, not the secondborn, the firstborn in every house, unless there's the blood of a spotless lamb on the door. He's here in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, guiding the people on a strange and unexpected path through the wilderness to the Red Sea. He's there at the Red Sea as a man of war, Yahweh our banner, who fights for his people with a mighty hand, piling up waters with the blast of his nostrils, destroying his enemies with the greatness of his arm. He's there as Yahweh who provides, bringing quail in the camp, bread from heaven and water from a rock. He's there as Yahweh, our healer, who turns the bitter water sweet and lavishes mercy and kindness on his people despite their grumbling. He's there as the fire on Sinai causing the earth to quake and the mountain to smoke, bringing his people to their knees in cloud and majesty and awe. And finally, he's there as father, as our father who saves his sons and his daughters and guides his sons and his daughters and comforts his sons and his daughters and is with his sons and daughters wherever they go. That's who Yahweh is. So what does this mean? What are, the, what are these threads? How do they come together in this story? What have we learned from this thick story of Exodus? We've learned that we groan, we grumble, and yet we are deeply and unfathomably loved by Yahweh, by the holy God who is independent by the covenant God who is the creator and author of all, by the God who reveals himself on the mountain, at Passover, at the Red Sea, in the wilderness, and at this table. For the God of Exodus is still with us. So, come, ye who groan. Come, ye who grumble and complain. Come, ye beloved sons and daughters of the Father. Come to the table where we sing and say, Come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Let's pray. Father, This has been a rich series thus far. I'm so grateful to have sat under so much of this preaching and to have been encouraged and strengthened in my faith through seeing your acts in history, seeing your presence with your people, your faithfulness to your people, your power over your enemies, and your love and care as a father. Thank you, Lord for your mercy to us through Exodus. And we pray here at this table that you would be with us here. Independent God that you are, author of everything, everywhere present, yet be here now in this building, in this place with us at this table because your son has promised 
to be with us when we take and we eat. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Invite the pastors to come for the bread. As always, his body is the true bread. Let us serve you.